Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palanker. This is the podcast where we search the world over for new topics to obsess over. We find them, we drill down on them. Really what we're doing is fracking for interesting items without any environmental damage. Books and movies and television shows or even talented and accomplished folks from the world of music, which we're really looking forward to bringing you today. So, Wheezy, we, we've got a combined media path suggestion this week, so we're going to start right away with it, and that is this great new film on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Yes, we both watched it. It was uh, spectacular. In, in case any of you youngsters need to be hipped on what the Chicago 7 is all about, this was the infamous trial of seven defendants charged by the federal government following the counterculture protests at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. They were charged with conspiracy, inciting to riot, and it was all related to the rampant anti-Vietnam sentiment that was coursing through America at the time. The seven were Bobby Seale, who was a co-founder of the Black Panthers, Abby Hoffman, who co-founded what was called the Yippies Youth International Party, Rennie Davis, Jerry Rubin, Lee Wiener, David Dellinger, and Tom Hayden, familiar to all Californians. He was a big anti-Warren social activist who later became a California state senator and a California state assemblyman. And of course, he was the husband of Jane Fonda, but never showed up, oddly enough, in any of her exercise videos. <laughs> Here's what's makes, Wheezy, this is what makes this movie worthwhile. First of all, the casting is phenomenal, including Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. And I got to say right off the bat, this, don't look for Borat. This ain't Borat, but he's funny, he's very intellectual, and he's a troublemaker during the trial. And, and other than that, this is a very important slice of American history. If you think we're unsettled and contentious right now, 1968 was even scarier. The anti-war sentiment was tearing the country apart. The trial was surreal for the shenanigans that went on, and apparently the real trial was even crazier than what's portrayed in this movie, which was nuts. And the best thing about it is it's written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Nobody writes smarter dialogue. Nobody writes better courtroom drama, if you remember, like A Few Good Men, and his hit Broadway reinterpretation of To Kill a Mockingbird. This movie will remind you that your fellow Americans have been at each other's throats before, and we have survived. Really liked it, though. They did a great job with this. Yes, many of us have survived, but uh, we <laughs> look at history. <laughs> we look at history through the lens of our current political climate, and so we see in this film an attorney general wielding the Justice Department as a partisan sword, a show trial designed to repress war protesters and placate the silent majority, which is what Nixon called like regular folks or white people. Uh, armed police <laughs> removing badges and name tags and intimidating, provoking peaceful protesters. We also see Sasha Baron Cohen using humor to shine a light on corruption. Hmm. Sounds like today's headlines, doesn't it, Fritz? <laughs> it really does. And, uh, you know, he's a good actor over and above his Borat character. I was really impressed. Abby Hoffman was a really smart, really funny human being. And uh, Mark Rylance as uh, William Kunstler was unbelievable. And an odd man to portray and an interesting casting choice, but he was great. So my second choice, Wheezy, is a book by Pete Buttigieg, his new book called Trust. America's best chance. You know, the consensus was that during the Democratic primaries, Mayor Pete was the smartest guy in the room. 
He was thoughtful and plain-spoken. He was a veteran and, of course, a gay man with a husband who garnered a huge following during the primaries and reminded us of our better selves and how far we've come as a culture, regardless of how far we think we've backslid during the current administration. In this book, he talks about trust being the way uh, that we will go to essentially facing the unique challenges of a complicated world. We have to get all sides and, in general, the two sides to trust one another. I wanted to call people's attention to this book because I think Mayor Pete is only at the beginning of his political arc, and I think he'll end up maybe with a position of national prominence in the Biden administration. Who knows? But we've only heard the beginning of his career, I believe. Oh, yeah. I think he's been the smartest boy in every room he's ever been in. Yeah. Uh, he's just and, and he's got a, a a big heart and he's decent. And I think he his his goal is to do good in the world. And that's what he's endeavoring. And uh, I think he's going to be a, a very successful uh, man. One to watch. I read a book or I'm reading a book right now for it's called it's called It Was All a Lie. Have you heard of this? Mm -mm. It's by Stuart Stevens. It's uh, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump by Stuart Stevens. From the most successful Republican political operative of his generation, this is a hard look at a once proud American political party that he's devolved into a hollow front for outlaws, cheats, liars, and those attempting to conceal perceived personal weaknesses. The party's public platform was personal responsibility, fiscal conservatism, strength against Russia, free trade, all of which sang to Stevens when he began his career inside the party. He now believes it was all a lie. Stevens says it's not so much that Trump hijacked the party's morality, but the party's barn doors were already wide open to fleeing values and marauding hucksters. Trump is just brazenly doing what they were all far more slick about. Here's how Stevens describes current Republican voters. They aren't voters using active intelligence or participants in a civil democracy. They are fans. Their role is to cheer and fund their team and trash talk whatever team is on the other side. This removes any of the seeming contradiction of having spent years supporting principles like free trade and personal responsibility to suddenly stop and support the opposite. Think of those principles like players on a team. You cheered for them when they were on your team, but then management fired them or traded them to another team. And so, of course, you aren't for them anymore. If your team suddenly decides to focus on running instead of passing, no fan cares as long as the team wins. Stevens shows how Trump is the natural outcome of five decades of hypocrisy and self-delusion dating back to the civil rights legislation of the early 1960s. Stevens tells us that racism has always pulsed through the modern GOP's bloodstream. Once Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act, Republicans happily swept up the aggrieved Southern white Democrats, which we call Dixiecrats. Stevens also shows how the party's advertised commitment to fiscal responsibility has been a charade since the 1980s. When a party stands for nothing, he argues, it is only natural that it will be taken over by the loudest and angriest con men in the room. And here's something I found very interesting, Fritz. Stevens writes about the multitude of gay men who work within conservative politics, and I'm actively composing theories as to why, Fritz, so hear me on this. It's possible that when you grow up gay in Mississippi in the 1970s, you see yourself as flawed and gay kids from conservative homes lie to survive. So lying becomes natural. So conservatism offers some sort of protection or absolution. You get into office and you vote against any LGBTQ plus issue for cover because 
what do you care? Your social circle operates inside your party. You've got your cabal and nobody's ratting on anybody. So remember when Lindsey Graham said, you can be black in South Carolina as long as you're a conservative? It's an insane statement to us, but to him, it's practically innate. If you are not a straight white man in South Carolina, you can lose your soul, but find shelter within the conservative wing. Sound plausible? I, I think your theory is absolutely correct. And there's all kinds of denial and transference that comes into that. Right. I think I think you're right. But I'll tell so, you what. Yeah. The whole Republican Party is going to have to get in the van and go down to the Home Depot and buy supplies and rebuild the entire party when this is over because it's been sucked into the Trump vortex. Well, it's, for that, they're going to need lesbians. <laughs> let us hope that as we well, <laughs> let us hope that as we become more involved in our acceptance of LGBTQ plus folks, we can stop hiding behind some sort of hypocritical protection racket. You can be gay. You can be whoever you are. You just can't be an asshole. And with that, we go to a commercial break. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if we had commercials, that would be the spot. That was Golf good, Weezy. <laughs> I totally agree with you. So now it's my great pleasure. I'm so excited to have this guest on because, Weezy, you're a musician, and, and I'm just a fan, and I can't wait to talk to Lee. This guy is one of the most respected bass players in the world, if not the most respected. Many people say he's got the best resume in the music business. He's had a 50-year career. He's played on over 2,000 recordings. He was part of The Section, which was the de facto house band for Asylum Records. He's played with James Taylor and Carole King and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt, Hall & Oates, Phil Collins, Crosby, Stills & Nash, the great late Warren Zevon, George Strait, Rod Stewart, and Dolly Parton. He's got his own YouTube channel teaching bass parts to 139,000 subscribers. His current band is The Immediate Family, which we'll talk about. It's made up of a bunch of legendary players, Wadi Wachtel, Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, Steve Postel. We can fill this podcast with his credits, but that would be wasting all of your time. We'll just learn. He's a funny and interesting person. Lee, we're so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. I am thrilled to join you. This is really fantastic. I've been such a fan of you. I mean, you were my go-to man on TV. So I we appreciate it. Oh, well, that's very nice. No reason to point out how old I am, but no, well, it's just broken. No. Anyway, I, I want to get right into some of the, You've been through there, been in the business at so many seminal moments. And I think the one that really sticks in my mind was the beginning of the James Taylor arc of fame back at the Troubadour. Talk about your first encounter with James Taylor. Well, I was in the late 60s in a band called Wolfgang in Los Angeles, and we were managed by Bill Graham, whose real name was Wolfgang. So <laughs> we thought, what, what a better thing to do to in, ingratiate yourself to your manager than name your band after him. <laughs> um, during the course of our rehearsals, uh, our drummer, Bugs Pemberton, uh, who was a British drummer. What a great and he was name. Part of, oh, yeah. Warren Bugs Pemberton. Um, he was part of Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in England, who were rivals of the Beatles back in the 60s. Um, he had a friend named John Fishbeck, who owned Crystal Recording Studios down on Vine Street near Santa Monica Boulevard. And John had done all of the early Stevie Wonder records, songs in the key of life and that, well, he brought an, a friend of his who had just come back to Los Angeles um, to one of our rehearsals, and it was James Taylor. And James had just come back from England, where he had done his 
Apple album, his first album. And um, he hung out with us for a couple of days and, and we, we talked music and everything. I was still going to Cal State Northridge, San Fernando Valley State College at the time. And um, he got offered a gig at the Troubadour and, uh, and they had a complete band. They had Carol King was the piano player in the band, uh, Danny Korchmar and Russ Kunkel, and they needed a bass player. And Peter Asher was producing and managing James from Peter and Gordon. And uh, James said to Peter, he says, I think I found the bass player for us. And they tracked me down and I thought I'd be doing one gig with him and it turned into the rest of my life. <laughs> you, ju you just never know, you know, these roads you take. Um, wow. and, and James took off and James was like the perfect person for this new, new direction in music, the singer songwriter movement, because there were lots of in the folk period, you know, the Dylans and the Phil Oaks and, and all these people. But when James came along, it was different. And um, it was a perfect storm. And I was just fortunate to, uh, to be there for it and also have the facilities needed to fill the bill. I mean, it wasn't just getting the offer. It was actually having, you know, what was needed for it. And, uh, and we all connected within that Troubadour run and it kind of changed the music scene on the West Coast. Were you aware of that when you were in the middle of it? I knew James was really gifted. I mean, the first time I heard him, he sat down at the, at our house, the Wolfgang had, and was playing some of his songs. And we just, I just knew I, this guy had something, but I didn't know I would ever be doing anything with him. But it was pretty obvious he was really a gifted artist. And the first time I got to play with Danny Korchmar and Russ Kunkel, uh, it was one of those things like finding these old slippers in the back of the closet and you put mm -hmm. them on and you just go, oh, this feels so good. And, but uh, this was in the beginning of when when the Wrecking Crew was no longer making the tracks that you guys, the artists were creating their own tracks. And so you, you had to know it was, the change was was afoot. Yeah. And, and I and with the Wrecking Crew such a remarkable group of musicians. And I was in a band in 1967 called Group Therapy that Mike Post was our producer. <laughs> wow. And um, when we went in the studio, we weren't allowed to play on our record. I looked through the window and there's Carol Kay and Hal Blaine and Mike Rubini and Mike Melvoin and Larry Nechtel. And, and I thought to myself, I was an art science major at Cal State Northridge. I thought I, I, I could never do this. And three years later, I was working with all those people every day. Um, but they were really kind of not in the twilight because they kept working hell work for, you know, a lot of those guys worked through the 70s, certainly. So there was some crossover. Yeah. They, and, and when they did the um, Wrecking Crew movie, Denny Tedesco invited me to a lot of the premieres because I was one of the transitory players that worked with those guys, but then also was part of this new guard that was coming onto the scene. Wow. Talk about and and Danny Tedesco, who did that movie, yeah, is going to do a movie about. Uh, where I'm jumping ahead now, but since we're on the topic, I thought yeah. I'd mention it. Is going to do a film about the immediate family too, which sort of takes your class of musicians who were there for the transition that Weezy's yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's it's it, we were really going gung ho with the movie until the pandemic hit, and then we've had to slow down just because a lot of it involves interviews and stuff and they really want those to be one-on-one -on -one in-person interviews and not just all virtual interviews 
but they've got they, they interview James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and Carol King and Phil Collins and uh, Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, there's a ton of people that have already been uh, involved in this and they film some of our, our concerts and they've got uh, forensics people uh, digging up all kinds of uh, you know, old wow. footage, old footage and pictures and stuff. But the thing that's fascinating to me, uh, Denny is a remarkable um, filmmaker, and his father was one of my favorite musicians in in the world. Tommy Tedesco was one of the greatest guitar players that's ever lived, and one of the truest characters that's ever been <laughs> on this planet. Um, but Denny is great, and I talked to him about that uh, because, and he told me, he said, look, the Wrecking Crew really was active for about 12 years in their heyday. And he said, they never left the studio. They worked all the time in the studio. They had really, they didn't write for the artists or anything like that. They were the band that did everybody's records. And he said, the difference is you guys have been together 50 years. Um, you toured with the artists, you've written songs for the artists, you've produced the artists. So it's a very different, it's not like Wrecking Crew 2. This is a no. very different thing, but we were so flattered when um, Danny approached us about doing this, this film. You got to come back and talk about that when it comes out, because I am Absolutely. stoked. I Absolutely. think the, the greatest revelation about the Wrecking Crew, which I've watched about five times, was it's like you're losing your virginity when you hear that all these great artists didn't play on their own records. I said, what? And then it becomes a fascinating story of all that. And the other part was you were talking about that. I guess uh, that woman was the first female Carol. session bassist. Carol. Yeah, Carol Kay. And they all went from session to session, like five sessions a day. It was yeah. endless. It was a factory. Yeah. Um, it was like the Brill Building in New York. I mean, these mm -hmm. writers that were working around the clock, these people had like they would be in one studio, finish a session and they would push their gear across the hall to at Gold Star or something. And and they and the thing that people didn't know is they would be listening to Frank Sinatra, the Tijuana Brass, the Association, the Beach Boys. It was all the same players, that core yeah. of players that played on everything. But they, and that Capitol so, Records building down there. Oh, God. Yeah, it was magic. It, mm -hmm. I mean, the first time I saw them when I was in group therapy was at, it used to be the complex of United Western Studios down on Sunset. And Western was the Eastern building and United was the most Western part, half of the building. And that was the studio that we did our record in. And... And I've worked in there a million times. And every time I walk in there, the weight of that session in 1967, it just sits on my shoulders thinking about the history in that building. Well, when you take a song and you record it. Yeah. And then you have that relationship with it. And now it's it's become a hit and you're out on the road with it. Your relationship with the song changes. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the thing is, when you're recording a track, you're involved in the immediacy of the process. Um, but when you hit the road, these things tend to go into another place because you're playing it every day. And there's refinements and things that take place during the course of a tour. Um, like with Phil Collins, when I recorded Another Day in Paradise with Phil Collins, I was the only person in the room with Phil and the engineer and the second engineer. And Phil had put together a little drum loop and, um, and kind of was humming ideas to me. He hadn't solidified the vocal yet. So I'm sitting there kind of crafting a part that other parts are going to be built from. 
but the minute we hit the the road and start playing it's a complete song at that point so we're living in it they're very different processes you know mm -hmm. I, people have asked me over the years what would i choose to do if i had to make a decision and as much as i adore recording i would want to be a live player i love playing uh, for people Wow. Before we wander too far away from the, yeah. uh, the seminal days of James Taylor and the Troubadour, um, you played on the Troubadour reunion tour, too, with James and Carol after that big release where they taped the show at the Troubadour. Yeah. You made a really interesting and funny comment about that tour, which kind of sizes up uh, any road musician's life. You said it wasn't a typical reunion tour where the band gets back together after 15 or 20 years of not playing together and you're trying to fit in a 40-inch waist to spandex pants. <laughs> <laughs> the musicians on your tour had never stopped playing together, so it wasn't like you had to find the, you know, we, the band's back together and we have to find our mojo again because you had yeah. been playing together on other people's projects. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things. It The minute we got together, it felt like we had been playing the previous day. And it was just a continuum of that process. The, the hard part of the tour, in a way, was we did the Troubadour for a week. Um, actually, one of the hardest things is the way we used to put sets together with James uh, when we would tour, is we would write all these song titles down on, on three by five cards and lay them on the floor, like have kind of an up section and a ballad section. By the time you lay down cards for James and Carol King, you're looking at, it looks like a ticker tape parade and it's like <laughs> this parade everywhere. Um, putting a, 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 trying to put together 28 or 30 songs out of their books was, was really tough, but we put together a great show, did the Troubadour and, and realized how good it was. But so they pitched, doing a real tour for the year, uh, not a real tour, but I mean a big tour. But how do you take the Troubadour and go into like the Staples Center with it and have it feel the same? Yeah. And they actually crafted a remarkable show. We did it all in the round. We had a raised stage in the middle of the, of the arenas, had above, above the stage like 10 huge high def um, screens with like 11 cameras on it. And we built a club around the stage that um, was the VIP section for the tour. And it was all little tables with lamps and people could bring food in there. And uh, it, it suddenly had the intimacy of being in a club in an arena, yet the people in the nosebleed section could still see um, because of these screens and the, the quality of, because it really, we had like a film crew out with us. And the thing that was really beautiful about it, though, was um, that VIP stuff was like, I don't know, it was 1500 bucks a ticket or something for it. Um, the people who bought those tickets got to come to Soundcheck, have dinner with the band, get all kinds <laughs> of stuff signed, oh, nice. sit down there, and all the money went to charity for that section. The tour didn't start making money until the outside of that, that ring. And so, it, like, we played in Nashville after they had a huge flood. And the money we made at the Nashville show for the VIP stuff went to flood relief. Um, so it, they made a, it was really a, a, a beautiful tour on every level. Awesome. Well, I saw that uh, show in, in Santa Barbara at the mm -hmm. Bull. And when you walk out, you walk past the buses. And I tried to picture what 
life was like for you guys once you climb back on those buses and kind of pull off into the night. Can you can you describe that a little bit for us? Well, it's 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 the, it's almost the same every time on every tour. You get on that bus, you're 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 buzzed from the the concert, so you're certainly not going to be going to sleep. And we would just kind of sit and, and talk and and hash out, you know, the evening and share things. Uh, the beauty of of contemporary touring is most of the buses um, have internet. So <laughs> you're not just kind of sitting there watching a VHS you've seen 50 times and hoping the machine still works after being bounced around. So we, um, everybody would kind of hang for a while. And then some people are just the most gifted sleepers. They'll climb in that <laughs> bunk and they are gone. I'm a hideous sleeper. So a lot of times I would be up way into the night or sitting up with the driver, just talking, you know, keeping hanging with them. But, um, but it, it really becomes this really unique family. And, uh, and some of them are really tough to end. When we did Phil Collins's 1990 tour, but serious tour, we were on the road for a solid year. And when it ends, you know, you're suddenly saying goodbye to people that you've really gone through a year's worth of experiences with beyond music just everybody's lives and there's been births and deaths and all kinds of stuff but james you know it was always a comfortable fit for us in the band we all knew each other so well and uh, and the thing that was sweet was having carol back because when when we were doing the original stuff in 1970 um we were encouraging carol to do some of her songs at the beginning of the show because people had no idea who Carole King was. People might've looked at records and seen Goffin and King mm -hmm. as a songwriting team, but Carole was writing hit records as a teenager. So suddenly she's on stage. So we encouraged her to do some stuff. And then she goes in the studio and cuts tapestry. Yeah. So next thing you know, you've got a side person in the band who's got the biggest record in the world. So She was a hesitant <laughs> solo performer, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. She had to be kind of shoved out there. She was very comfortable as a writer. Um, but had really not spent. But she got over that quick. She <laughs> she loves she loves the stage. You know, she when she gets out there, man, she she takes over. So it was James and Carol and who else? Uh, and, it was James and Carol, myself, Russ Kunkel, and Danny Korchmar. Cooch. Um, that was right. the original band. And then when Carol, it was time for her to leave. I was doing an album at A and M Records at the time with Tom Jans and Mimi Farinia. Mimi was Joan Baez's uh, younger sister. She was married to Richard oh. Farinia. And um, there was a keyboard player on the date named Craig Durge, who I had never met before. But I, I talked to him and I called Peter Asher after that and, and told Peter, I said, I think I found the guy to take, take over Carol's position. And he came in and it was a great fit. And he, he became the newest member of that touring company, Very cool. which led to the section. All right, we're going to take a commercial break for a moment. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the immediate family. Okie doke. Sounds good. You know, winning season returns at my bookie. Hold for applause. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contests, 
and squares. At MyBookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar-for-dollar match all the way up to 1000 bucks, and grab yourself a free entry into the famed MyBookie Super Contest. To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at $100,000, guaranteed in cash prizes. The best part is MyBookie has thousands of bets to choose from. From the full NFL slate, playoffs, from live betting to championship futures, every play you want to make is waiting for you at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your dough. Use the promo code MEDIAPATH and double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Weez? You can bet on it. <laughs> so Lee, does the yes. immediate family does it does it uh grow out of the pandemic or was this something that you guys had already planned to do together? Uh it was all it had already happened. What what happened was Danny Korchmar got a record deal with a, a label called Vivid Records in Japan. And when it came time for him to go in the studio, he kind of thought, well, who should I work with? And because he assumed we were all going to be on tour because Waddy was out with Stevie Nicks and I had been out with Phil Collins. And so he called and R Russ and I were both in town. We said, we'd love to do it. Are you kidding? And at the end of that, we did it at Jackson Brown Studio Groove Masters in Santa Monica. And at the end of the week, uh, Waddy had gotten back in town. So he came down and joined us for the last day of recording. And then he did some overdubs on that. And Danny had become friends when he moved back to Los Angeles from the East Coast, where he had been living for a number of years. Uh, he and Steve Postel had become friends. And I had done Steve's album like 15 years ago. He, he's really a fine singer, songwriter, musician. And so he and Danny were doing pre-production for this project, I think even before they knew Russ and I were going to be available. So it kind of all fell into place and we got in the studio and we always tell people that during that period that we're a cover band that only plays originals. <laughs> and um, and wow. it was one of these things that Danny had written all these songs like Dirty Laundry and All She Wants to Do Is Dance with Don Henley. Um, he'd written Machine Gun Kelly that James Taylor recorded and Nancy Sinatra also recorded that and did a really great version of it. Um, so we, on your we, online video, I'll just interrupt you for a second yeah. about the immediate family that was done at that guitar festival. Uh, Danny tells a great story about composing uh, Dirty Laundry and how that worked with his Farfisa organ. And he just laid down this very, what everybody uh, judged to be a boring track. And then Henley came in and wrote, to my uh, opinion, one of the most beautiful pieces of rock and roll writing ever. It's, it's Dirty so Laundry. good. Yeah. yeah, it's so good, you know, and the whole process is always one of these things. You never know what's going to happen. You know, yeah. one person comes up with an idea. Um, so we, we finished the album and when it came time to, it was going to be Danny Korchmar in Japan and Danny said, well, you guys, you're my immediate family. You know, I mean, we really mm -hmm. are like an immediate family together. So it became Danny Korchmar and the immediate family was the first album that went to Japan. Then we, we had another, uh, album to do with that label. And we signed with a, a company here in Los Angeles called Quarto Valley Records. And, um, and we went and did an, an album of all new original material rather than going in and covering old material that, that had been written because Waddy had 
co-written Werewolves of London and different songs with Warren Zevon. Um, so, uh, so at that point, we dropped the Danny Korchmar part and it be, just became the immediate family because now it, it's an entity unto itself. But the thing that's really beautiful about it is you hear stories about the Everly Brothers and, and Crosby, so all these bands that like just are fighting constantly. You know, the Everly's used to get in fistfights on stage and stuff. And we have never had an issue. I mean, we've always gotten on great together. We're all really good friends. Musically, we're almost like a, an organism that, that functions a, a, as, as a unit. And, uh, and the hundreds and hundreds of albums that we've done for other people um, represent a real cross-section of, of the musical genres. And, uh, and so 50 years later, to suddenly be on stage looking next to me, and there's Russ Kunkel there like he was 50 years ago, and there's Waddy right next to me and Cooch right next to him and Steve. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. And one of the things I used to say with the Troubadour tour was I said, there's the old adage that you can't go home. But we actually got to go home and home was really cool. <laughs> I like that. And I read how your bass is uh, different parts put together to create an instrument. And it's like you guys are different parts put together to, to create mm -hmm. one instrument. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy to it. Yeah, my bass I call Frankenstein because- Can we see it? Mm -hmm. Is he there? Uh, actually, yes, it's it's right here. It's what I use on a lot of my my videos. Um, yeah. That's... This this was a Charvel body that was made for a precision bass, but I've got precision pickups where jazz pickups would have gone. Oh. Um, the neck was a precision neck that I didn't like precision, so I had it reshaped into a 1962 Fender jazz bass um, profile. Uh, on the back, I've got, there's a thing called a hip shot detuner right here that drops my E string to a D. That's oh. the first prototype of that. The pickups, wow. when Rob Turner started EMG, that's his first generation of pickups. And the bass is completely covered in all kinds of autographs. Oh and, that, and that started, we built the bass in 73. John Carruthers at Westwood Music built this bass with me. Um, but the thing that was great about this was when the Dodgers won the World Series in 81, we got called to go in and do a cover of Queen's We Are the Champions with the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. So it was Rick Monday and Ron Say and Jerry Royce and Jay Johnston and uh, Steve Yeager. And they were signing baseballs at the end of the session for everybody, even though they were pretty hammered at that point, but they could still get a signature out. Um, <laughs> and I looked at them and I said, well, why don't you just sign my bass? And they went, really? And I said, sure. So they signed the bass and those were the first signatures. Then we were on the road with James Taylor and we were at a gig and Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan from the Pittsburgh Steelers were there and they looked at my bass and they said, oh, baseball players are pussies. You need football players. And, <laughs> and, then, and then they signed it and then it just took off. So I've got, I mean, I've got like George Lucas signed it and he wrote, may the force be with you. And then Peter Max made a Saturn next to George's signature. And I've got Jeff Picaro, so many musicians that have died and B.B. King and uh, Floyd Kramer. I mean, there's probably 300 signatures on the base. So. Oh, Fritz is going to draw you a storm front. 
Oh, yeah. That'll add to the value of that thing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> hey, while we're talking about longevity on the road, I think there's another, Wheezy, your metaphor was great for his life, and I think I found another one, too. Uh, you were on the road for 42 years and only broke two bass, uh, bass strings the whole time you were there. Yeah. And, and the metaphor I connect with that is you've been on the road with all manner of rock and rollers, stayed sane and healthy because you never got involved with drugs or alcohol. And maybe that's the reason why you only broke two emotional base springs the whole time you were out there. <laughs> How, was that hard to stay clean, honestly, on the road for long periods of time? Not really, because I'm a real type A personality. And I was real, I, I'm not gonna say I was fortunate, but back like when I was still a teenager, um, I was doing gigs with some people that were people died of meth overdoses. I was around people having really like tragic acid trips. I saw the real dark side of what drugs and alcohol could do from a pretty early age. And it, it really had no appeal to me. I was kind of the designated driver in every group I was in. I got everybody home. And uh, so I, I never patted myself on the back for it. I just never found it appealing. I've, I've never liked the taste of alcohol, even in cooking. So not to drink was not a big deal. But there's so many times where you're on like these long bus rides and you know you've got like five or eight hours ahead of you. And one of the guys comes up and starts going, have I told you I love you, man? I love you. And next thing you know, you get out the gaffer tape and you just tape them up and push them in a box and cut them up a few hours later. But oh, you know, I, I think I've always been pretty healthy. You know, I've, yeah. I was, and I'm the kind of person that I check into a hotel and I take the stairs rather than the elevator most of the time and yes. stuff like that. What are three things that you need to have with you on the road? Oh, gosh. Good um, question. I don't need a, I don't need a shaver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you're like the one guy during the pandemic was like, ah, beauty salons are shut down. I'm, I'm going to be good. Oh, I'm fine. You know, the thing is, through the pandemic, this really, I miss performing. I miss playing with oh, other yeah. players. But for the most part, when I'm home, I'm I'm kind of, you know, I'm married and I have my puppies, but I'm kind of a loner. I love doing yard work and things like that. So for me, the only thing I'm truly missing is is the, the musician hang and, the, and playing. Mm -hmm. But on the road, one of my essential things, and it's in every hotel room, you go check into a room and you can't get the room dark because the damn curtains won't stay shut. <laughs> so the first thing you do is you go in the closet and you take out the pants hangers right. that, they, that they have and you clip your, your curtains together and then the room's dark. That's one of my Good best things. On That's the an awesome travel tip. We it could really also is. get you like some customized Lee Sklar <laughs> chip clips that, yeah, that yeah. musicians can bring with them. <laughs> Hey, Lee, going back to the beginning of, you know, the troubadour and everything. Yeah. I, I wondered uh, about your opinion of the recent Laurel Canyon era movies that have come out, if you've seen them and if you have memories of any of the things that occurred in those movies. Well, they, they almost feel like I'm watching my life uh, mm -hmm. taking place because I was a part of that whole scene, too. I didn't hang out in the same way that a lot of the people in those movies did, because usually for me, when I finished what I was doing, I would go home. It wouldn't be like hanging all night and stuff, but certainly, you know, Crosby and, and Nash and Joni and J.D. Souther and, you know, the 
Coco and the Burrito Brothers. So I was in the middle of all that stuff in there. I, I find it fascinating seeing the movies and seeing sometimes the perspectives that they take on. Sometimes you see things and you go, that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> They've taken a, a, a certain sense of liberty with, with some of the editing and things. But um, but I, I think it's imperative that that just like, you know, the Wrecking Crew and the Standing in the Shadows and the Muscle Shoals documentaries, I think documenting these periods is absolutely essential because as people are disappearing, the history is going away and they're disappearing. I mean, in these past couple of past month, I mean, I worked with Mac Davis and Mac died. I did. Oh. I am woman with Helen Reddy. She's gone. I worked with Spencer Davis. He's gone. Jerry um, Jeff Walker. Just the yeah, other Jerry day. Jeff just um, passed away. Um, as these people are going away, if their lives and experiences aren't documented, um, future generations won't know about it. And I think it's so essential for the growth of what we do to know where things come from. And uh, wow. so I, I enjoy all those movies, you know, I mean, some I look at and I go, I wouldn't have put that in or done it differently. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful for the wrecking crew. I mean, for the immediate family movie that will really I'll tell you if they just sit and record the anecdotes that you three Titans have accumulated over your long careers, Russ and Danny and you, it's going to be a spectacular film. How far well, into it were they when they shut everything down? Um, we're probably about three quarters of the way into it now. I mean, it was pretty. They they were taking sizzle reels to the to the film festivals and getting really great responses to them. The next thing that we're going to film is going to be uh, we're going to go to either a restaurant or somebody's house to do a roundtable and tell stories. Oh, that's that'll be the, awesome. And that's going to be really really fun because once you start those, one person feeds the next, and then all of a sudden it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, it's just like music. Yeah, exactly. We'll be jam. We'll be jamming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about your YouTube channel because is that something you started during the pandemic or is that something you've been doing yeah. for a while? Yeah. Yeah, I mean what what happened was um the the last live gig we played this year was with the immediate family and it was a thing called Rock Legends Cruise and it was from um Fort Lauderdale to the Grand Caymans and back. And it was Roger Daltrey and Nancy Wilson and all these, these people were on it. And when we got off, all of a sudden, everything shut down. And I, got, I found myself sitting kind of going, what, what am I going to do now? Because a year's worth of work just absolutely evaporated in, in front of my eyes. Well, we had just finished almost two and a half years on the road with Phil Collins doing the Not Dead Yet tour. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had guys writing to me during the course of it saying, because we were doing like huge venues and stadiums, doing like 70,000, 80,000 seats on some of like South America and Europe. And I had people writing to me going, we, we saw the show, your front of house guy's great. We, we could hear it pretty good, but we couldn't hear all the nuances and details. So what I did was I had Michelle Collin, who was our front of house mixer, send me a show he sent me Adelaide. Um, it was a really good show from Adelaide. And what I did was I, I set up my computer where I'm sitting right now talking to you, plugged in a little Bose speaker into the headphone jack, have a ba small bass amp next to me. And what I did was I put on the very first song of the tour of the show and I played bass along with it. And I just set up my, my iPhone. I was filming it on the iPhone. And I kind of mixed it where you could hear the bass above the track. So you could hear every note. 
And about three songs into this thing, I had people writing me going, we love your YouTube channel. I'm going, what channel are you talking about? And they said, oh, no, we're, we're following you. And, and like overnight, this thing just suddenly took on a life of its own. And, and I it was turned out to be bigger than basis. It was it was just general music fans and Lee fans that are tuning in. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of characters. And I, I ended up there's a, a guy named Rick Beato on YouTube who has this really great music channel. And he's got these things where it says like the 10 best guitar solos and he dissects those and drum fills. And he's he's a really bright guy. And I did an interview with him and people saw my interview with him and all of a sudden started coming to my channel. And um, it's just taken on a, a whole thing. And I ended up forming a clubhouse where like um, tomorrow is my live stream. I do two live streams a month for about two and a half hours. And, um, and then I have a one-on-one -on -one thing I do once a month with people on Skype and FaceTime. But it's just, you know, it's just evolved into something completely unexpected. And it just went 140,000 today to add another, That's I'm adding about a thousand a week on the channel. And, but I go to bed every night reading, I, I've put up a video every single day since the pandemic began. I haven't missed one day. Um, and some days I just play a song I worked on and talk about it. Other days, most of the days I play a song. So it's challenging to me because I have to go back sometimes I'm picking a song that I worked on 45 years ago and I'm suddenly going, how did this go? And I give myself like 10 minutes to wrap my head around it and then <laughs> perform it and then talk about, you know, who was there. And the beauty of this all is if I get something wrong about uh, who, who was on the dates or anything, people write in, they go, no, it was actually so-and-so on drums. Wow. So it's become a community. And when I do my live stream, uh, like tomorrow, it starts at three o'clock West Coast time. Um, sometimes I'll go in like a quarter to, to three and I'm watching and the chat room's full and everybody's talking to each other. It's like, I'm a facilitator. I don't even have to be there. Um, wow. They've sort of taken this on. So it's kind of thrilling. And, and the, res the responses I've been getting, I, people send me, um, pictures of the family eating dinner, watching the videos on TV. Um, wow. I think so that, you know, if you look for hidden blessings in the, in the pandemic, uh, that there's just multitudes. And one yeah. would be, you know, for you, the opportunity to uh, explore this part of yourself and, and challenge yourself in this way. But for us to get to know you as a person, you're the guy with the beard that's yeah. in all the, that, the the YouTube's I watch of James Taylor and Carol King like like you're that guy, but I didn't know how what a lovely man you are and how charming and how personable and now we're all getting to enjoy that. Well, it's let me show you how me. funny this guy is. Let, yes. let me, uh, I'm going to pay you a compliment. <laughs> He's got a coffee table book out called Everybody Loves Me, and it's irony at its best. This is a book of twelve thousand photographs of people flipping Lee off. But how do we audition? Jack Nicholson, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow, Charlie Watts. My question is, were you asking them to flip you off, or is this just the natural reaction people have when they see you? Well, the, the, the story, the story, there's Jeremy Irons, and there's Quest. <laughs> do you have um, the Pope? Yeah, there's Jack Black. No, the book. I get the book in about three weeks. It's, it's being shipped to me now. Uh, they were printed oh. overseas. But um, the thing... 
that happened was on, <laughs> Phil's, on Phil Collins' 2004 tour, um, there was talk that Phil was going to retire at the end of the tour. And um, I thought, you know, we had like a hundred crew out there. And I thought I may never see a lot of these people again because they're from Europe. They're from all over the world. It's a really an eclectic group of characters. Well, they hired a, a bass tech for the tour for me. And I've never really had a tech. Um, I've always kind of done my own gear on the road. So he came in, I think he came off of a tour where the bass player had like 10 basses and wanted new strings every night. And all this. <laughs> he was like, man, he was ready to go. And he said, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, well, nothing really. And so we had this running gag for the whole tour. I mean, he ended up becoming a general guy. He would do my gear and then he would help get the singer's lozenges and direct them to the stage. And so his name was Steve Winstead. His nickname's Chinner. So at the end of the tour, I thought, I'm going to take pictures of everybody and make a little folder just of all the people I've come to know on this tour. Uh, I go first guy I walk up to is Chinner and he's working on his laptop. And I said, um, Chinner, give me a smile. Without batting an eye, he just gave me the finger. <laughs> and I looked at the picture and I went, this is actually pretty cool. So I went and got Phil, his manager, all the band, the crew, caterers, truck drivers, and tucked it away for a couple of years. And then I went on the road for the first time I toured with the band Toto. And I did the same thing with those guys. And it got up to about 300 pictures. And then it just took on a life of its own. And I've gotten, you know, the, uh, everywhere I've gone, you know, I, I take pictures. I uh, can sit on an airplane and get the whole compartment on the plane to give me the finger. <laughs> the book actually has 6,000 photographs in it. I've got 12,000, but we just did, couldn't go that ridiculous. So there's, there's room for volume two eventually. Um, but people would come up to me like at the trade shows, like the NAM show, and they run up to me and they go, <laughs> and, and Wait, I don't have my camera. Yeah, and it's all—it's all in good, good humor. You know, I—I've got nuns in here. My the oldest. Oh, that's I have. It's a hundred two years old. I've got babies in here. Um, it's a real cross section of humanity, and it's just a lot of fun. And I'm really excited. It's something I that I've been asked to do for years, and. If it weren't for the pandemic, it wouldn't have happened because I had a full book for the year. Uh, but sitting around just kind of going, what should I do? And we've we've done this. And uh, it's you, just you dropped the name Toto a minute ago. That was one yeah. of the tours that got eaten up by the pandemic for you, right? No, no. Um, I, the first time I went on the road with them was 2007. Um, no. And that was the falling in between tour. And then we went out on the road again. I think it must have been 2012 or something like that. Oh. Um, Toto, Toto ended up closing shop this, this past year because of, there were some crazy things going on that legal things that they had were out of their control. And so they've, they've, Toto doesn't exist anymore, but um, Steve Lukather and uh, Joe Williams, the singer, have got a new venture going that they're going to be launching and it's really going to be great. So the music will continue. Let me ask you something about sessions. Yeah. In order to be a good session player, you have to be adaptable to music styles, right? Is that, and that's one of the things that gives you longevity, right? For instance, you play with Phil Collins, then Thursday afternoon, you're doing a Dolly Parton session. Yeah. How is that? You have to be able to mix up your genres a lot. Um, 
I've never found it difficult. I was fortunate to grow up in a very eclectic household musically. So my parents had a really great record collection. So I was exposed to all kinds of music. And I was a classical pianist as a child. Um, I started playing when I was five years old. Yeah, you were a wonderkind. You won well, awards. Well, I, I took to it you know, really quickly. And I won some awards from like the Hollywood Bowl Association and got to meet Eugene Normandy, the conductor of the Philadelphia wow. Orchestra when I was like seven years old. By the time I was 12, I was toast. I was just burned out. <laughs> and uh, when I went into junior high school, the, the, I kind of assumed I'd be the piano player. You know, you've been, you've been groomed for this. And the, and the teacher, I went to Birmingham out here in the San Fernando mm -hmm. Valley. And um, the teacher said, look, we got a ton of piano players. We need a string bass player. And, and I, he pulled out a string bass, put it in my hands. I plucked one note, felt that vibration and said, done, I'm your guy. <laughs> and never looked back. Um, but growing up in this household, I, I, we listened to all kinds of music. So when I started working in the studio, um, I was always listening. So if I got called to do a, a reggae session one day, I, I knew enough about reggae to kind of BS my way through it. I, I would never be Sly and Robbie and the guys who, you know, really wrote the book on that. But I know enough about pretty much all the genres where I can pretty much come up with credible parts for things. So I've done, you know, jazz and, and swing and hip hop and, and metal. And, you know, it's a, uh, I, but I love the challenge. I love the, uh, the, the fact that I never, almost never knew what I was getting into when I'd get to the studio. I wouldn't know till I arrived what I have to be doing that day, who the artist was or anything. Um, and it could be a Schilling's spice commercial, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, and you're suddenly, you know, doing music or doing feature films. And, but uh, you have to be a sight reader to get session work. Correct? Yeah, well, that's that's what being a classical pianist gave me was was the ability to read. And then I did all of Mike Post's TV shows for the, his whole run with Pete Carpenter and his show. So I started with the Rockford Files and we did Magnum P.I. and Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and. All, all those shows and uh, a team and all you know that stuff. Uh, one of the fascinating uh, movies about session players uh, was the Funk Brothers standing in the shadow of Motown. I don't know yeah. if you saw that, but yeah. what I loved about that was these guys would go out and work with their combos in jazz rooms the night before, improvise a riff, take it to the Motown session the next day, and that riff would show up being in like my girl with yeah. the Temptation session. I mean, are are you allowed to improvise and put a little of your own imprimatur on these things when you when you do them, or is that? I would say 80, 85% of the time, it's up to me to come up with parts uh -huh. and, and do it. Um, you know, it's always fun when you show up at a date and, and they've got a score. So then you can mm -hmm. just, you can just perform it. Mm -hmm. um, but so many times, especially like in the, the old times with James Taylor and Jackson Brown, they would come in, sit with a guitar and play you a song and you would figure out what the song needed. I've always been a song person. Um, so I always let the song kind of guide me and dictate what it would like me to contribute to it. I've never, because I hear a lot of stuff and it feels like some people impose themselves on songs to kind of show off their chops and all that. And I'm really content if a song, like if I'm working with Reba McIntyre on a really tender ballad and all it wants is some whole notes and half notes from me, I'm good with that. That's what the song wants. 
And if I'm doing a, like Billy Cobham doing something like Spectrum, which is one of the seminal rock jazz fusion albums, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to jump into the deep end too. It's whatever is required. And you try to keep your, the hard part during the pandemic is just keeping chops up, you know, because yeah. I'm so used to playing every day. So I try to play every day still while I'm home, but you're not pushed like you are when you're in a performance. Do you situation. jam with anybody online, like on Zoom or anything? No, because the 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 um, the technology isn't good. You're, you, mm -hmm. It's really going to be lagging, and and yeah. like I've done. I work with a girl. One of my favorite artists I work with is Judith Owen, who's married to Harry Shearer, and, ah. um, and she's amazing. And we've done a, a bunch of acapella videos um, where she'll do a part and then send it to me, and then I put my part on, and then Pedro Segundo will maybe put on a percussion part. And then we've been, she has a place, they live down in Santa Monica and I'll go down there and we'll do some living room concerts. But um, it's, but the technology really isn't there to actually all be playing together. I hear some things are getting better, but um, one of the funny things is on my uh, YouTube channel on the one-on-one -on -one things that I do, there's a guy in England and he wanted to play some Phil Collins songs and he's, he's gonna play guitar, then run over to his drum kit and play then a keyboard. And he wants me to play <laughs> bass along with like, turn it on again. And uh, I'm just sitting here <laughs> going, this is total chaos because it, the, the, the time lag and all that, but he was having the time of his life. So we got to play together. So it was, it was cool, you know. It's, every day's an adventure through this. I mean, we just don't know where we're headed. I mean, we're in this God knows, political quagmire at this point and um you know and and the idea of not being able to interact with people and the minute they open the door slightly everybody goes berserk and then the numbers go completely crazy so mm -hmm. so we just don't know quite where we're headed no no that's a it's, that's it's a very scary. who would have, who would have thought well I, I think I knew that things were going to go desperately wrong within four years of not only not oh, being helmed, but having said the helm facing uh, towards the bottom of the sea. I, <laughs> you know, we would have been safer having zero presidents. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I was I was forever amazed that he isn't in the bottom of the East River in concrete just for all the right. crap in real estate in New York. He for totally, not paying his masonry guys or something. Oh, yeah. He totally, <laughs> my wife's cousin worked for a company that he burned him for millions of dollars on one of his casinos. Um, you know, wow. I mean, it's like the guy's history is like so insane. But these people sit there like, I mean, it's like the Morlocks and the Eloys. And the, this <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, can, before we wrap it up, can, can oh, you yeah. just give us one uh, uh, of your favorite sessions or one of your favorite tours or one of your favorite artists to work with, just so we put a little tail on our great show um, today? Boy, that that's that's such a hard one because I love them all. You know, one of my favorite sessions, I will have to say, was Billy Cobham's Spectrum Sessions. I had been on the road. Our, the section was opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra, who were just the most amazing musicians. And I got to know Billy through that. He called me and asked me to come to New York to do his album. And we did the whole album in two days. It was Billy Jan Hammer on keyboards, mm -hmm. the great Tommy Bolin on guitar, and myself. And we cut the whole, really, basically, it's all one or two takes of these songs. And even people like Jeff Beck, when he sees me, comes running up and he goes, Stratus, Stratus, which is one of the 
detracts from that, and he does it in his show. And he said Tommy's guitar playing on that album changed the way he thought about guitar. Wow. So wow. It's a, it was an amazing, amazing experience doing that. But, man, it's after this many years and many projects, it's like... Too I, tough to I, pick I, one. I pinch, I pinch myself every day, and I just feel so fortunate that I've been able to have the career I've had. And still moving forward is what I like. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, this has been a treat. Um, uh, you're not only a great musical talent, you have such a great spirit about yourself of positivity and humanity. And we could make this conversation go on for a long time. And I wish you success. And I hope when this movie is done, you'll come back and talk about it because well, I'm a big back. fan of music docu documentaries. Great. I would come back anytime. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. This has really been a, a really great time for me. And I'm always at your disposal if you need me or if somebody cancels at the last minute. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm here. Nicely. <laughs> How do they get to your YouTube channel? Uh, what's it titled? Just go to uh, on, just go on YouTube and just pull up Leland Sklar. Okay. And these videos will pop up. And for the book, I created a website and it's called LelandSklarsBeard.com. <laughs> and that was available? Uh, LelandSklar.com and LeeSklar.com. Somebody already owned those. Uh, and I, oh, I hate that. A squatter. I hate those squatters. Yeah. No. Yeah. All right. So, well, then that, that just compelled you to something way cooler. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not? You know, it's, it, but it's really, it's been active. And today I'm, I'm just putting up, I was a graphic artist in, in college. So I'm putting up uh, artwork that I've done that, that people can buy copies of that really high quality stuff. We will do like limited edition signed. Is that stuff. at your website? Uh, that's on the website. Okay. You know, you yep. are an, an absolute inspiration as to how to stay engaged during this pandemic and to challenge yourself and see yeah. it as, as, as kind of fertile soil for, for opportunity or, or for creativity that you didn't have time for when the world was, was yeah. more busy. And Good so point. thank you for sharing all of this, because I think you're going you're gonna to help people maybe dig in somewhere where they thought, oh, you know, well, I can draw, we, I can, I can make a little are. movie. We all are the immediate family as as a, as a humanity, and that's the way I'm looking at this. I'm I'm so loving the fact that people are looking to be engaged and not just sitting. I mean, there's a couple of things that have happened on my site that I, I'm not going to go into that really blew my mind, and I was so grateful to have it because this person might not be here now. If, oh my they, goodness! Um, wow! Wow! It's it's deep. This whole thing is is so profoundly deep where we find ourselves, and there's a a level for me of uh, where I'm, I'm, a I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by, I'm, I'm really proud of what's going on, but I see so much suffering every day that people are going through and you almost feel guilty about having things going okay, you know, during this because so many people aren't. And well, so I'm trying to create a platform for people just to get away from the day for a little while. If they and, can. and you're experiencing and they're experiencing through your platform just how connected we are, not just in terms of uh, biology. Yeah. Uh, because be, your neighbor's health is now your health. And also yeah. your neighbor's emotional health is your health. And we just need to take better care of each other. And I hope that's what we're learning to do. I hope so. I hope so. No, this is just absolute treat. You know, I, I really I was so thrilled when you contacted me. But I thank Tracy for hooking us up, and um, 
And this is this is just great. I love what you guys are doing. It's she was really as excited as we were to be able to make this uh, hookup. We appreciate it. And of course, her husband is a bassist and your biggest. Yeah, fan. no, they're they're a great couple. You know, they, <laughs> um, okay, that's awesome. All right, here come your credits. Well. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPath Pod, and on Facebook, where we are MediaPath Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Leland Sklar. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Brian Benna, and you. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path.